podcast is a service of Bridgeway Community Church in Rockford, Michigan. Thanks for listening. Here's today's message. Well, good evening, Bridgeway. I'd like to add my words of welcome, and thanks so many of you for coming out tonight for our Good Friday service. I also want to take a moment and welcome those of you who are joining us at Church Online, Church at Home. It is good to be together tonight and to celebrate uh, really this evening. And I'll tell you that uh, the Good Friday service for me personally is always something that I look forward to. And yet at the same time, it's a very different service to experience. In fact, when you come and attend with us on a Sunday, we gather every single week to sing about and to learn about and to praise uh, the resurrected Jesus. That's kind of the whole reason we get together. In fact, one of the great themes in the Bible is a little Latin phrase called Christos Victor, the victory of Christ. And you come to a Good Friday service like tonight, and it looks like anything but a victory. In fact, it looks like a grand defeat. And yet it's in this moment that you still have the opportunity to see the victory of Christ. And I want to remind you that Sunday is, in fact, coming. Um, It's good for us on this night to kind of move a little bit more slowly and a little bit more thoughtfully through what we're going to experience. We're going to experience the death of Jesus tonight. And it's unpleasant. It's maybe even at times uncomfortable, but it's good for us to not just quickly move past this. I know how the Easter tradition goes, and oftentimes there's thoughts of tomorrow and egg hunts and and the big family gatherings on Easter, but tonight we intentionally slow down, and I believe that that is really good for our souls to kind of have a, a proper night of lament, and that will prepare us even more for the celebration of the resurrection on Sunday. We've made it kind of a project over the last several years to look at Um, the statements that Jesus makes from the cross. Jesus makes seven statements from the cross. And every year we've been looking at one of these statements, kind of just allowing kind of one statement from Jesus to sort of be what we soak in and reflect on on Good Friday. And tonight we're going to do that again. In fact, this is our sixth year of doing that. So we're going to finish this project next year on Good Friday. These seven statements that Jesus makes are some of the most profound words you'll ever hear uttered by a human being. These words have been studied, they've been debated, they've been dissected uh, by Christians and non-Christians alike because these words are just so incredible about what Jesus offers. And I'm going to say it again, these are the last words of a dying man, Jesus. You think about it, um, last words should sort of have like a, a gravity to them, right? I mean, If you're going to say goodbye to someone or if you're going to not see someone for a while, you would want whatever words you use to sort of have some some impact on them. Hopefully, even tonight as you leave here, maybe you'll think about the last words you share with someone and maybe you'll even be a little more thoughtful of being encouraging to someone or saying something kind to them. Uh, You can even kind of practice this at home before you head out the door. You can kind of think for a moment, before I leave this house... What are, what are the last words I'm going to share with the people I see? And I've been trying to do this, and, and I always try to do this in my home. I, I left tonight, and I said goodbye to my wife, and I said, I love you, sweetie, you know, and I don't have as many kids in my home right now. Some of them are, are kind of gone and traveling and out of the house, and so looked at my son Braylon, gave him a hug, and said, I love you, buddy, and of course, always right by my side is my dog, my faithful dog, patted him on the head, love you, Luca, and then I headed out the door, and if some of you are wondering, you know, did I have any, you know, words for my cat? Well, you just don't know me well enough if you're asking that question right now. But our last words should matter. In fact, there's kind of a, a book 
that captures some famous last words. And these are famous last words from, from people throughout time. And some of them are kind of ironic and funny, and some of them are, are sort of sad. Uh, I'll give you a funny one first. And this one are the words from a guy by the name of Dominic Willard. He was a foot soldier during Prohibition, and he got captured, and they were going to execute him by firing squad. So they all raised their guns, about to execute him, blindfolded him, and they asked the classic line, do you have any last requests? He was kind of tongue-in-cheek with it, and he said, why, yes, a bulletproof vest, please. Uh, they did not grant him that wish. I mean, you might know of some of these others. This is uh, Winston Churchill, and of course, uh, famous British wartime leader, uh, Churchill is known for giving inspiring speeches, uh, words that kind of inspire people to never give up. But when he reached the end of his life at 90 years old on his deathbed, you could sort of tell he had had enough. And his last words were, I'm bored with it all. And he literally died right after saying that. Uh, another one kind of from the land of rock and roll is uh, Bob Marley. Bob Marley, of course, uh, famous for reggae music and really even more so for bringing kind of the, the plight of poverty in Jamaica to kind of the Western eyes and, and died really young, like 36 years old of cancer and just far too young. And his son Ziggy Marley was right by his bedside and he said these words that I think are just so true. He said to his son, money can't buy life. Isn't that profound? Isn't it just I mean, you can rent life, but you, you can't buy more of it. Just great words. Kind of sticking with the, the rock and roll theme, uh, George Harrison. Oh, one of my favorites, uh, the Beatles. If you don't know anything about me, I love the Beatles. I, I kind of grew up in a home. My mom was a hippie flower child. And, and, you know, I just, I remember like sitting on the floor as a kid, just playing with my toys and Beatles music, like all the time, 24-7 and milk crates full of records. Kids, we used to actually have record albums. And I just go through them and all of them, Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and Rubber Soul and, and George Harrison, of course, uh, just an amazing musician. And his last words are, are quite profound as well. Um, he had a lot of spiritual influences, never claimed to be a Christian, but his last words were, love one another. And I found that so ironic because actually those are the words of Jesus. Jesus says that in John 13, 34, a new command I give you to love one another. Well, I want to share with you tonight, far better than then famous people, dead people's last words are the words that you're going to hear from Jesus tonight. And I believe that these are words that you can really hold on to in the darkest moments of your life because that is the place from which Jesus shared these words. And what Jesus is going to give you tonight in his words are an invitation to trust God with your future. And I'm going to give everyone an opportunity tonight to do just that, to trust God with your future. We're going to have an experience and a time to do that together. But first, we have to experience this, this moment that Jesus went through. Jesus went to the cross, and he was an innocent man. He died a horrific death, but it models for us really what trust begins to look like. If you think about it, uh, you ask psychologists, psychologists would tell you that the two greatest fears of a human being is, number one, speaking in public, and number two, death. Do you know what that means? That means that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than having to give the eulogy. Seriously. And Jesus on this night actually does both. He dies with incredible dignity and grace, and he gives these profound last words. You think about it, when Jesus died, he really modeled for us what it looks like to kind of have our last moments. I mean, Jesus never feared death. I mean, he knew exactly where he was going. He was completely at peace. And think about this. Jesus gave us this example that he died with no unresolved relationships. 
He didn't have anyone that he didn't say something to that needed to be said. I mean, he said what needed to be said to his betrayer, Judas, to Peter, his denier, to Caiaphas, the high priest, even to Pilate. He shared his last words. He had nothing left to say, no unresolved conflict with the people around him. He trusted God all the way to the end because he knew that it wasn't the end, that Sunday was coming. Um, when you look at his moment here on the cross, crucifixion is something that I think we have a vague understanding of in our day-to-day. Um, and you think about it, it was 2,000 years ago, and, and we really don't experience this form of brutality today. And so I want to tell you a little bit about crucifixion. First of all, um, this idea of crucifixion was around way before Jesus. In fact, uh, there's some great research that's been done, and it's actually the Persians in about 800 B.C. that first started crucifying people. Very crude, they would just impale you with a giant spear and then stick the pole in the ground, and you would sort of flail around on the pole until you died. And it wasn't until really 71 uh, B.C. and Alexander the Great where he really perfected crucifixion. And by perfected it, I mean he learned how to really inflict terror and pain. There's some stories in history that uh, are just, honestly, just crazy to think about. There's a story of a famous gladiator named Spartacus. Spartacus came up out of Sparta with 120,000 of his soldiers, of his men, and in a famous battle against the Romans, trying to overthrow Rome, they were defeated. Rome was not satisfied just to defeat Sparta. They actually took 6,000 of their men and crucified them. They actually lined the roads, all coming in and out of Rome, with crosses. Uh, Literally, 6,000 men for 120 miles were hung on crosses. Historians said that uh, you could tell that something had happened because there were no trees to be found in that region. Jesus would have seen lots of crucifixions as a child, as a young man growing up. He would have known exactly what crucifixion was going to be and what he would experience. Um, we kind of get this notion that when we see crucifixion, we think that, uh, that the cross is way up in the sky and a person hung way up high. It actually probably wasn't like that. Most historians would say that crosses were intended to be dropped into a hole so that the victim would be at exactly eye level with their accuser as well as with their family, so that it was a public spectacle that you never would want to try to overthrow or stand against Rome. Jesus would have seen this. It would have been barbaric. It would have been a horrible thing to see. It would be disturbing. Bodies would be left for days to hang on a cross. A great theologian by the name of N.T. Wright uh, said this about crucifixion. He says, it was disgusting and shameful, uh, the notion involving bodies hanging on crosses and being eaten by, by rats and vermin and birds, all as a public display. And it would have been painful. Jesus would have experienced incredible pain. In fact, uh, a word was invented. Uh, the word excruciating means from the cross. Pain from the cross would have been what Jesus experienced. And it would have began really the night before. Uh, if you remember the night before, Jesus would have began by feeling the pressure of this moment. And he would have been in the garden while his disciples couldn't keep their eyes open. Jesus was praying, and you know the story. He was literally sweating drops of blood. Medical professionals would tell you that this is very uncommon, but it's typified of someone who's experiencing incredible stress. The capillaries in their body are literally bursting and mixing with their tear ducts. He was already feeling all of that trauma and all that pain. Jesus would then be arrested. He would then be beaten with clubs. They would then tear out the hair in his beard. They would 
twist a crown of thorns and place it on his head in mockery. They would spit at Jesus. And then they would take Jesus and they would have two trials, completely illegal, uh, one in the middle of the night before the Pharisee Caiaphas, and then one in the morning before Pilate. And when the crowds shouted, crucify him, Pilate washed his hands, and then things began to really ramp up in intensity. Before Jesus would face the cross, he would first face a flogging, a scourging, and this would have been brutal. In fact, there would be a post that uh, the victim would be chained to with their back and their buttocks and their legs exposed, and there would be two Roman guards, and they would take, each take turns with a whip. It would be a whip, not with one strand, but with nine strands, and at the end of the whip would be uh, either pieces of metal or hooks. And the executioners knew exactly how to inflict the most pain. They would strike the victim in the back, in the shoulders, uh, across the back of the legs. And you think about that, that's nine lashes. There's 40 lashes and nine strands, so that's 360 stripes. Isaiah says, it's by his stripes that we are healed. And they would strike in such a way that they would allow the hooks to dig into the flesh, and they would make sure that they were taut before they would rip away from the body skin and muscle and tendons. Even historians said at times a rib could come loose in that moment. Many people would die just during the flogging. Jesus did not, and then he was forced to carry uh, his cross. The cross, the cross beam would have been equivalent to like a railroad tie, about 100 pounds of rough, metal, rough wood across his back, across exposed nerve endings. And he would have walked a very familiar road called the Via Della Rosa, a cobblestone road that would lead him to the skull. Jesus, as you know, stumbles under the extreme pain and difficulty of that moment. Uh, scientists have said that it probably was the equivalent when he fell with that weight on his back of, of being involved in a car accident, hitting the steering wheel, and probably began to uh, cause heart damage in that moment. Jesus reached the, uh, the skull, the place called Golgotha, and the Roman executioners would then take your hands and spread them out on the crossbeam, bending your elbows and driving eight-inch stakes into your hands, crossing your legs and driving an eight-inch stake into your ankles. And they would be bent because that would make it harder to breathe. In order to breathe, you would have to pull your chest against those spikes, pushing your feet against um, the spike in your feet in order to get a breath. And then as you exhaled, you would sink back down that cross. And this would go on sometimes for some victims uh, upwards of eight, nine days. For Jesus, to give you some indication as to how badly they beat him, Jesus only was on the cross for a mere six hours. In fact, he was, uh, at, now at this point, he hadn't slept in 24 hours. He hadn't had food or water in about 12 hours, and he's been hanging in the sun for six hours, and he offers these words to you and I tonight. They're found in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. The sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. 
just a couple things to say about this experience is, is first the centurion. The centurion would have been one of the Roman executioners. And centurion would have meant that he was a, a higher-ranked official. He was in charge of at least a hundred other soldiers. And he would have been a pagan. He was not a believer in the God of Israel. He did not believe that a, a Messiah, a son, would come from God. And yet he gives us this very strange moment, right? I mean, he's now praising God. And he says, surely this was a righteous man. Why would he say that? Well, I'll tell you, it's because he's never, he's never seen someone die like this. I mean, he's probably executed hundreds, if not thousands of people. And he's seen something that's completely different. And I think part of it was the fact that it says in this text that, that when Jesus died, he gave out this loud yell, this loud cry. Uh, I've been around um, many people who have been at that moment of taking their last breath. And I can tell you it's not very pleasant, and it usually involves a lot of whispering, uh, sometimes a lot of labored breathing. But I can tell you as your pastor, I have never witnessed someone yell. Usually people are way too weak in that moment. And so this is telling us something about the way in which Jesus died. He died not in weakness and in defeat. He actually died in, in a moment of strength. And he died in a way in which I believe he was calling out death itself. I believe that hell had to cover its ears in this moment as Jesus began to call out death, call out the devil, the same serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, the, the same devil that, that led Herod to massacre all of those young boys in Bethlehem. The same devil that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. A lot of people will ask around Easter, well, you know, who's ultimately to blame? Who killed Jesus? You know, was it, was it the Pharisees? Was it Caiaphas? Is, is he kind of to blame? Or was it, was it the Romans? I mean, they invented this whole thing called crucifixion. Was it, was it Judas? You know, he betrayed Jesus. And, and I would say to you, the answer is D. It's none of the above. Uh, Jesus chose this moment to die. He voluntarily gave up his life as a sacrifice for human sin. And he calls out to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, if you can, t t try to take that scene in for a moment. I mean, I know we're here inside and you look outside and it's a beautiful night and, and the sun is shining. It's not that warm, but it's going to get warmer tomorrow and warmer the next day. And, and we're the crowd that's not going anywhere for spring break. So, you know, like, enjoy what we've got of this weather, right? And yet this moment would have been so different for Jesus, right? It says that it was dark. It was pitch black during the middle of the day. Can you kind of imagine how eerie that would be? And Jesus is right in front of you, and you can barely see him because it's pitch black. I mean, how often does it get pitch black during the middle of the day? It has to be kind of like a strange storm of sorts, right? I remember about a year ago, uh, we had some, some really early spring weather and some storms that came through, tornado warnings, and I was in my basement at the time, and there wasn't really the threat of a tornado, but the sky got pitch black, and, and it just got really, really dark. And in about a minute, it got really silent, and then all of a sudden, these straight winds came through, and I had three trees in my backyard, and it literally just picked these trees up and unrooted them and just knocked them over, did a ton of damage. And in about five minutes, the whole ordeal was over, except for all the cleanup work. And I imagine this going on for, for, for hours in Jesus' death, and people wondering, like, is it, is it going to stay like this? Is the sun ever going to come back? Is this darkness ever going to end? 
And it's in that moment, in the darkness, that Jesus gives these incredible words of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, I think what we need is we need words when things are dark, when times are difficult. I can remember as a kid growing up, and uh, my mom would always pray with me at at bedtime. And it wasn't like kind of a free-flowing prayer. It was a memorized prayer. You probably know it, right? It's, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And then the prayer gets a little dark, right? Like, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Turns the lights off. Night, Ronnie. Sleep well, right? Like, (laughs) kind of a disjointed little moment, right? But it's actually in that moment where we need the most comfort, and Jesus gives it to us. So I want to ask you tonight, when when you look at your life, who do you trust? I was reading an article just actually this morning talking about how uh, kind of in our country right now, trust is at an all-time low. And so think about it. Who do you trust? Do you trust, you know, elected officials? Do you trust, you know, big companies? Do you trust the media? Uh, This report was saying that our trust is at an all-time low in these areas. Think about it even just um, when you think of your own life. Do you trust yourself all the time? Do you trust your emotions to be a really good guide of what you should actually do in certain moments? See, we need a, a better guide, and we need a better thing to put our trust in. You will have to choose. You can choose to trust worldly systems, or you can choose to trust the one who created the world. And I think that's the good news of Good Friday, that you got to choose the one who created everything, including you and me. But you will have to choose. You will have to choose in this moment. And Jesus gives us this reminder. It's into his Father's hands that we can put our trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I was thinking through this week about how that first word, Father, can really can be a detractor for some people. You know, some people can, can think of their own father, their earthly fathers, and maybe didn't have a great experience or maybe your dad wasn't around, and you can kind of almost kind of project this on what a relationship with God could be. And I want to remind you that Jesus, in his darkest moment, trusted his heavenly father, his good father that you can trust in all ways. And so I want to ask you tonight, not just who do you trust, but what do you need to trust God with? I want to be really practical tonight and I want us to just kind of really think about and reflect on this idea. What do you need to trust God with? Maybe some of you are here tonight and you need to trust God with some aspect of your family. Maybe a family member, maybe someone that you know that's just kind of gone astray or you've got some friction with. Maybe it's, it's with your spouse in your marriage. You need to trust God in a new way there. Maybe it's with your health. Maybe it's with your job. In some ways, just what is it that you need to trust God with? It's been kind of a, a difficult year, and I think one of the things that's happened in the last year is we've sort of had this, almost this callousness that we've developed as, as a society, right? Because we've had to, in so many ways, sort of trust in ourselves and trust in our own instincts. And, and in some ways, we can kind of feel like the rug gets pulled out from underneath us. And maybe in our faith, that's a good thing to say that there is nothing except God that we can truly trust. You know, or your other option is sort of the, the Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. And how well does that really work out for you? So I want to encourage you tonight to trust God with whatever you need to trust Him with tonight. And we're going to close this service down with sort of an experience together of all trusting God 
with something. I believe there are some of you here tonight that maybe you've come into this room and you've been carrying around something that you need to let go of, and the cross is where you need to leave that tonight. I honestly think it would be a shame to hear this story. You know, this story, as I've done my best to describe it to you, is full of pain and agony, but it's a story of faith and trust, and it's a story that offers us life on the other side of death. And I think it would be a shame, it'd be a waste to hear that story and not respond by trusting God in our own lives. And I want to challenge you to do that tonight. And so we're going to have an experience, and if you look at the seat pockets in front of you, there are little pieces of paper and pens. We haven't had paper and pens in this room since pre-pandemic, but those are there tonight for you. And I'd like you to take that piece of paper out, I'd like you to take a pen, and I want to encourage you to write something on that card something that you need to trust God with. It might just be as simple as a word, my marriage, or my addiction, or my job, or my secret, or the struggle I have with gossip. Maybe some of you are here tonight, and someone dragged you here, and you're hearing about what this Jesus has done, and, and you know that you need to trust God with your life. And maybe you just write that on your card, Jesus, I need to trust you with all of my life. If you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you to make that decision tonight. Because that's what this centurion witnessed. He witnessed what theologians would call the great exchange. As Jesus was up on the cross, perfect and sinless, he stood there for all the struggle, all the hurts, all the sin and the hang-ups, and the times when we miss the mark. And he exchanged, he offers to us this righteousness of God that's available to every single one of us. See, this is the Christos victor. What looks like defeat is actually a victory over your own personal sin. I think it shakes me every year to recall this story and to think of what this man has done for me and for you. And so you have that piece of paper, and we're also going to celebrate communion tonight. And Dan is going to come up, and he's going to lead us in a time of reflection and um, as you come up, I'm going to encourage you to take that piece of paper, and there are baskets on the corner of the stage, one on this side and one on the other, right at the end of the aisles. And you can place your piece of paper in there. You don't have to worry. No one is going to read these. You don't have to put your name on it. This is a trust statement between you and God. But once you've done that, then the tables are set for communion on both sides of the stage, and you can go, and there are prepackaged communion elements that you can grab. It contains the, the bread and the juice, which represents the body and the blood of Jesus. I want to read from Matthew 26 and then give you a time to, to move in your trust to the baskets and to the communion tables. Jesus said this. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so now the communion tables are ready. I just simply want to close us in a time of prayer. Father God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, God, my hope and my prayer is that we would just set aside all of the elements of our life so that we could focus on this one moment that you created this one moment where you stepped into human history to offer us what we could never do on our own. You give us this great exchange from death to life. 
And so, God, as we take our step, I want to encourage everyone here, everyone within the sound of my voice, to trust you with their lives. If that's you tonight and you've never made that decision, I just encourage you to make that your prayer tonight. Jesus, I want to trust you with my life. And as you do that, I promise you that God will meet you in those words. He will meet you in that moment. And you'll begin this incredible journey of a life with him. If you've already made that decision, then I would just encourage you tonight to tell this man how much you love him for all that he's done. For he is worthy of all of our worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This podcast is a service of Bridgeway Community Church in Rockford, Michigan. Visit bridgewaycommunity.org for more information and other messages.